This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Can we rekindle our love for video games? Or is it game over? Press reset and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of Scrooges, I want to say, because uh, I'm not feeling this Christmas spirit myself, but uh, I don't want to put bah humbug in your mouth. Nah, Christmas is pretty bah humbuggy this year because of the, the, you know, only eight people can come to your house thing. <laughs> yes. That makes it hard. You know eight people? Yeah. Oh, man, look at you showing off. Yeah. And I'm feeling kind of bummed out for because when I was a kid, some of my most memorable Christmases are the ones where I got, uh, you know, an Atari cartridge or in a magic game for my uh, 2600. And I was hoping to give that sort of excitement and magic to my daughter this year. And uh, we got her the hottest game of the year, uh, one that's been long coming. And it turns out it's got plenty of glitches. And in some cases, some of the areas are just unplayable. And so I had hoped to give her the Christmas magic like we had when we were kids and she was robbed well, of that. She, she got a 2020 Christmas. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so as a result of that experience, today on the show, we're going to be talking about whether or not there's any hope for us to uh, rekindle that spirit, uh, regain that excitement we once had for video games. Uh, but before we do that, please like, rate, a review, comment, uh, subscribe, do everything you can to share the idiots and let other folks know about the show. Because every week we are here to prove the 1980s was the best decade for pop culture. All right. That said, uh, I guess we have to get on with the show. Yeah. There's no no other option. All right. Let's get caught up on 80s news. Today on 80s news, uh, do you remember Billy Mitchell? What do you, what's going on with the, the audio over there? I, I am not doing it. I don't know where that's coming from. Whoa. Uh-oh. Brett Weiss. <laughs> what are you doing here, Brett? Hey, yes. I grew up playing uh, such retro consoles as the Atari 2600 in television and ColecoVision. Although I'm now in my 50s, I like to yep. keep the spirit of that magic alive. And you can do so in many ways today. Um, I've got to tell you, the only thing I've recently had to look forward to is waiting for your NES Omnibus 1 to drop. Oh. <laughs> and I hear that that's available now. So that's maybe some small way we can recapture this. But we long for those Christmases where, you know, you didn't know what you were going to get. Right. I remember getting Adventure one Christmas and, you know, I kept playing it and playing it until, you know, you finish it. And then trying it on a different right. level and trying it all over again. And Pitfall. I remember getting Pitfall and Pitfall 2. Boy, you could play for 24 hours straight. Those adventure games like that were so... Uh, were groundbreaking for their time and just so yep. it was almost like reading Alice in Wonderland or something mm. because they were so, uh, you know, surprises and, you know, nonlinear and strange, you yeah. know, so much different than uh, so many other games on the market. You know, I remember that the, you know, David Crane and uh, his, his uh, buddies over at Atari, when they left to form Activision, one of the things they had, mm-hmm. a, and I'm not telling you something you don't know, but one of the gripes <laughs> they had was that, you know, the boxes had this fantastic artwork on it, and then you'd get the game and it'd be a couple of blocks. 
So that's why we've got Activision. Their covers are, you know, kind of a WYSIWYG. You know, what you see what you is what you get. But I got to tell you, when I got that adventure game and you see the dragon on the, you know, that dragon painting on the cover and that mm-hmm. artwork of this, I, I still felt like that spirit, even though I was a square holding what was essentially an arrow. Well, that the painted art on the Atari 2600, I did a video comparing that yep. to the early NES art, mm-hmm. box art. And I called the Atari art dishonest, tongue in cheek, <laughs> because it's these elaborate paintings. Yeah. And I called the NES artwork honest because it's just mm. bit, you know, eight bit art sort of, you know, just blocky art on the covers, yes. telling you more more of what you're going to get. But those that Atari art did, you know, capture your imagination and would I think it actually um, complemented, you know, mm-hmm. um, enhanced the games you were playing as opposed to being disappointed, you know, as kids playing Atari, we didn't expect what we saw in the box to be on the screen. And so we were perfectly happy to guide little, you know, stick figures and uh, square ships and the, you know, adventure, the, um, the dragon that looked like a duck. We were perfectly happy with that. (laughs) But, (laughs) but yeah, we, the, the box art just kind of added to the enjoyment. Unfortunately, so many of us threw away the boxes to, to, Mm. because of space. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, I would love to have those today. You know, for, for oh, absolutely. when Renee and Ray and I were kids and, and still today, uh, you know, play Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games. For me, it was not unlike that because, you know, they would have this fantastic art on a, on a module for Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. and you had to use your imagination to visualize the story. And so maybe as kids, it was a different experience for us where nowadays you need, you know, these elaborate cut scenes and you need folks like Keanu Reeves in a video game to really, uh, I don't know, help fuel the newer generation's imagination. They, they, you don't have, you don't need an imagination. It's all there for you. Oh, now I'm bumming myself out again. <laughs> so now you guys are going to be visited by three spirits of oh. retro gaming, present, past, and moving forward. Three spirits that will help guide you to recapturing that magic we all had as kids playing retro games. Oh. Which were at the time modern games. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was mm-hmm. that was odd, you know. Uh, okay, yeah, glad that's done with. Yeah, okay. So uh, I will say he did remind me that a little bit of Christmas cheer is looking forward to his book NES Omnibus One, available at uh, brettweisswords dot com. W e i s s. Okay, enough of that. All right, yeah, we got to get back to eighties news. So speaking of being bummed out about the state of retro games let me let me tell you what's going on with billy mitchell what is that yeah i'm not i'm not doing this oh this my is god a- he actually said this was going to happen we're being visited howard, howard scott warshaw what in the heck are you doing here hello will how you doing uh, good i sort of caught the vibe that something was going on and i thought this is a place i'd like to contribute so well, i figured i'd materialize and show up this is perfect timing because we've been sort of lamenting, not retro games, the new games that are coming out and, you know, longing for the Christmases of bygone eras where we looked forward to getting that very distinctive uh, wrapped or shaped rectangular box under our Christmas tree. Yeah, new stuff is new, stuff is new, but it's new in old ways, isn't it? It's like Cyberpunk 2077 is having a big recall now, <laughs> pulling it back. Yes. So it's, you know... A, Everything old is new mm. again. They're still releasing games that have problems on release. And <laughs> if anybody is familiar with a game that has a problem on release, it is <laughs> yes. us. Yes. And you know what? I was just realizing as we we're sort of recollecting about Christmases of the past, that 1982 had to been my best Christmas haul of all time. Because not only did I get uh, Yars Revenge that year, 
I also got Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. This is all for my 2600. We were a 2600 family. My, my dad and mom bought that, and we never saw another console in our house. And, of course, I got the thing you're alluding to, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, which actually came out Christmas of that year. Mm-hmm. They were all great games, but how disappointed I was, Howard, to see in 1983 that a game I loved, E.T., the Extraterrestrial, w- would bring down an entire industry, one that brought me so much joy as a child. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess my first question is, how dare you, sir? How dare I? How could I not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, after all, what, what do we do when we create media? And I always saw video games as producing media. Mm. Now, you're an experienced media producer. Thank you. Obviously, this is media right here, right? So Some would say. The way I look at media is that the goal of media is threefold, right? I want to, uh, a good piece of media, in my opinion, uh, it informs, it entertains, and it creates and generates social discourse. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that some of the games that I did back then, we're still talking about today. Yeah. Uh, it makes me feel like they were very successful media products. Yeah. You know, sometimes people think I'm really sensitive about the E.T. issue. Oh, you yes. make the worst game of all time, you know. Mm. And it's like, I'm not particularly sensitive about it. On some levels, I'm kind of proud of it. Mm. You know, and the truth <laughs> is, I don't really believe E.T. is the worst game of all time. And a lot of people join me in that thought. But... I prefer when people do call it the worst game of all time because Yars Revenge, you know, my first game is frequently cited as one of the best games of all time. So as long as E.T. is the worst, I've got the greatest range of any designer in history. And I'm very happy about that. And in short order, within just months of each other. So you just published a new book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Yes, thank you. (laughs) You know, in there you talk about how at a young age you were very much involved in, in playing games, even as a means, I think you say, to to keep away boredom, because boredom would be a time for introspection, and who wants to do that? But, but between that and ultimately you finding a role in Atari uh, in, in 1981, what experience have you had with video games at all prior to that? Almost none. I mean, I had played some Pong-esque variants, you know, as most people had at some point. I thought video games were interesting. I thought they were kind of cool. And I was also certain I would have nothing to do with them, <laughs> which was kind of interesting. My, I sort of happened to Atari as opposed to sought it out. Yep. How I got to Atari is kind of an amusing thing. I mean, the first time I ever saw a, a video game per se was in a Blimpy's restaurant, one of these sub shops in oh, New yeah. Orleans. And there was this cabinet. There was a Space Invaders there. And I just took a look at it for a moment. I didn't play it. I just sort of looked at it for a bit and I thought, man, this is going to be really big. And then I ordered a, you know, a roast beef sub. And (laughs) and I was working at Hewlett Packard as a multi-terminal system engineer, as a computer engineer, formally trained. But I was so unhappy and had so lost the joy and and just the the passion that I had for computers that I had discovered in college doing some real-time control system programming like you do in video games. And that was totally lost at Hewlett Packard. And I was acting out because I am, you know, you wouldn't know to talk to me, but I'm kind of a wild and crazy guy. (laughs) And uh, more so than Hewlett Packard ordinarily tolerates. So people would go home and tell Howard stories. And, you know, one of my uh, coworkers came up to me one day and said, you know, I was telling my wife a Howard story the other day. She says stuff like that goes on all the time where she works. I said, oh, where's that? And he said, oh, it's Atari. I thought, oh, that sounds good because I need a change. I need to go somewhere else. I called Atari, wangled my way in, 
to get some interviews, found out they do real-time control programming. I was one of the few people who actually had background and training in it at that time. And I thought we were all set on a collision course, and then they rejected me. They did not want to hire me, which was turned out to be a very funny story in retrospect because they didn't think I would fit in at Atari. <laughs> turns out I did. <laughs> so we've talked to other folks before, and it's still fascinating to me when we come across yet another person in a different industry that in the 1980s broke ground, you know, uh, was essentially um, creating a role that hadn't existed before or, you know, having to learn on the job, I suppose. Was it the same for you at Atari? Because we had consoles in the 70s, of course, but they weren't what they were about to become. They weren't. The, the 2600 was interesting because it was the first console that really had the capacity for interchangeable cartridges. Other consoles had done it, but they weren't developing it to the extent that the 2600 was pursuing it and Atari was. So it became the first console that really took the industry by storm. And it was a very, very primitive hardware. And it took people who, what a lot of people say is you had to be a, con in order to be a, a video game maker back then, you had to be a weird combination of someone who's very anal and very goofy, <laughs> right? You had to be anal enough to like and enjoy doing this nitpicky, really technically challenging, intricate programming task. Right. And then you also had to be, you know, wacky and goofy enough to come up with fun ideas and strange things to do with the hardware. So groundbreaking is a great term for it. It really is because uh, I like breaking new ground. I like doing things in new ways. And Atari gave me the chance to do that and really value that aspect of it. And Yars Revenge was a game that did all kinds of things no one had done before. Yars Revenge set a whole bunch of standards in the industry that no one had ever seen before including pause mode. Yars Revenge was actually the yes. first game with a pause mode, mm -hmm. right? So next time you pause your game, remember to say, thank you, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did some very unusual things, and that was groundbreaking. But uh, on, uh, I think it was April 26th, 2014, E.T. became groundbreaking in a way I had never anticipated <laughs> before, and that it actually came up out of the ground. But right. I can say that every one of my games was groundbreaking in some interesting way. Of course, you're you're alluding to the uh, dig site in Alamogordo, New Mexico, where they ultimately did unearth some E.T. cartridges, long rumored to have been gestating there. And indeed, we validated and invalidated the uh, urban myth at the same time. Yeah. I hope most of your listeners are familiar with the story. But yeah. And after that, I decided I need to write a book about this because yeah. I think I had some real impact on Atari and the course of things and changing how video games went back then. But Atari had tremendous impact on me, reverberated throughout my life for years. And it's an interesting story. I think it's an yeah. interesting story. And I finally got the book together. Yeah. And that's why, uh, that's what you talked about before. Once Upon Atari is just, I just like that title. Yeah. And so, because it is like a fairy tale, except it's a real life adventure. Yeah. And it's, what's great about it. And now, and maybe, and maybe I'm curious, you know, obviously your new role uh, in the world is as a therapist and one specializing in the challenges, it seems that might plague uh, folks in Silicon Valley, including their loved ones, someone married to someone who's maybe uh, facing the certain obstacles that come along with that industry. But it's interesting to me that in reading the book, which is which is fascinating because you really get a sense of what it was like to be there, it seems like at that time, how it may have been a training ground for you to become a therapist. Because a lot of the folks you talk about in the book, 
have or different maybe neuroses. And you even create this new category. I love this theory that even a corporation might have its own <laughs> uh, personality disorder. Was this prepping you for what you- It's true. Atari was an amazing proving ground for someone who would be a therapist because it was an incredibly stressful environment. Yep. It was a wild and crazy environment. There were uh, outrageous people, very eccentric, bordering on the strictly neurotic, and some not just bordering on it, but way crossing over with papers. <laughs> and uh, I'll tell you, there was some nutty people. There were, there were people who were carted away. You know, yep. there were actually nervous breakdown. <laughs> so it was a high-pressure, high-tension environment with a lot of extreme and exotic personalities. It was really an interesting place to be at the time. What's interesting, though, is that in some ways, I feel like I've come full circle mm. in a way, because back then at Atari, what I was doing was I was entertaining nerds. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is now I actually work with them to make their lives better. Mm. So it's like after a long journey around of going through so many careers right. until I finally settled on becoming a psychotherapist. And the amazing thing about psychotherapy yep. is that it's the first job I have had since working at Atari that gives me the special combo that I need to be satisfied in a professional life. And that is something that really stretches me both technically and artistically. Atari really did that for me in a beautiful way. And psychotherapy does that too. It's the first thing I found in 30 years that gave me the satisfaction I found at Atari. You know, talking about uh, Atari, the ultimate demise of Atari and, and the, you know, and you do a good way of, I think it was a very good way you describe sort of uh, what may really have been causes and maybe really was going on. You know, we call it a crash here in the U.S., but in, in Japan, video games were still thriving. And obviously they find a way to sort of crack their way into America based on what they saw happening uh, you know, to Atari and the other consoles. So it was a crash of sorts. But um, I guess related to that, I mean, you know, to tell these stories of the three Christmas, which is a plural of Christmas, everybody knows. <laughs> the third story, you know, tells us, and folks who read the book and read these stories is they're really, they're hilarious, they're enlightening, and learn a lot of great behind the scenes stuff about Atari and the development of these video games and the characters involved. But you tell, in this third story, you talk about how in, uh, it's around the fall of 1982. So you've got some defectors from Atari. One group, uh, Dave, Dave Crane and a bunch of folks create uh, Activision. Uh, and you've got uh, Rob Fullup that does uh, Magic with a couple of other guys, Bob Smith and someone I'm forgetting. Um, and Dennis Coble, yeah. All right. So it seems like Atari thinks they're going to, the way you describe it, get revenge on I Magic by releasing Atari's financials. Uh, but when Atari finally releases its financials, their financials are terrible and so this causes, you know, folks at stock market to, you know, disregard video game companies as a as having any future. And the planned IPO for Imagic is, you know, it dissipates. Was that, was Atari, I thought, was Atari trying to show them, show Rob up by saying, look how awesome our company is, how much money we made, only to realize, oh no, we've had a bad thing happen. Or did they know they were going to show terrible financials and they were willing to tank the market to ruin the futures of these third-party developers? I think it's the latter. Wow. I, mean, I truly believe, because they knew what the numbers were, right? So the numbers yeah. weren't a surprise to the Atari execs. The yeah. thing that was a question was, when would they release it? There's a time when you release your numbers. And usually when a company has some bad numbers coming, yeah. they do their best to hide it as long as they can. Sure. But there were other motivations. There was, you know, 
there was some vindictive people you know, hanging out at that company at times. And so what happened was they decided to release their bad numbers early, but they happened, you know, I, maybe it was just a coincidence, but it turns out it was like 48 hours before Imagic was set to IPO. And when Atari's numbers came out, all the financial uh, people backing that IPO pulled out because it was mm. like, oh my God, we thought we were going to ride this wave and now it's a crash. And so it totally blew that and really destroyed the the, the, the dreams wow. of a lot of yeah. people, people who were my friends, people yeah. I really cared about. It was, it was a sad day. Mm. A lot of people see it as a sad day in the industry, but for me on a personal level, it was very sad and it was hard to be a part of something that was going on like that for me. But I'm really happy to say that the friendships among developers, whether they stayed at Atari or left Atari, those friendships were solid and remained and remain to this day, frankly. Right. I'm still friendly with Bob Smith and Rob Fulop and Rob Zadibble and Todd Fry. A lot of the people you see in the book, I still deal with on a regular basis and very much care about these people. We, we were in the trenches together at the beginning and really forged some uh, relationships and friendships that have literally lasted a lifetime. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So there you go, folks. That's one possible explanation that has nothing to do with E.T. I think E.T. is your best game because wow. I've played many, many hours of it. And Thank you. Yeah, yeah, compared to the other ones, I think that's your best game. Well, I hope you're not looking for an argument from me. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. It leads me to a question, though, because, you know, one of the, you know, the biggest criticism of the pits and having read your book. And again, folks should check out Once Upon Atari, how I made history by killing an industry by Howard Scott Washer. There was a lot of playtesting for some of your games like Yars Revenge. You know, we know the turnaround time for E.T. was short. Hmm. How did we how do we wind up there, I guess, with this? I think the frustration was getting out of the pits. That was the challenging part. Uh, that yeah. was the pits. Yeah. <laughs> getting out of the pits was definitely the pits. Yes. And it's it's like it's one of the great ironies of E.T. that a game that was all about pits wound up in a pit in Alamogordo, <laughs> New Mexico. Right. So, that didn't even you know, you know? Yeah, but it's, you know, to me, I looked at it as gameplay. The idea yeah. was you needed, where's the gameplay in ET? Part of it was supposed to be when you get out of the pit, you have to know how to manipulate the character mm. with the graphics around in a way and, and to exit yeah. the pit in a way that you don't fall back in. I saw that as gameplay. Yeah. Unfortunately, most players saw that as crap, <laughs> irritation. <laughs> so I was off on that one. I missed. Yeah. I apologize. You know, I'd like to take a moment to say to all the people who really had a <laughs> trouble and frustration with that, with ET, and you really were disgusted by it, and you're really angered by it, I just want to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, this is like an exclusive. My bad. Like, you, know. you know, and <laughs> my, our, my buddy Ray here, he, he's a master of getting out of the pits. We were playing it on a show, I don't know, a few months ago, and he was showing me tricks for getting out of the pits, no problem. He and his brother mm -hmm. developed back tricks. in the 80s, yeah. You know, and this yeah. this is no slight against Todd Fry. I've seen him speak about the challenges of bringing the Pac-Man port to the 2600, but I was surprised you said, you know, when, when Spielberg says to you, "Can't you? why don't you just make something like Pac-Man, which I thought maybe he wanted E.T. eating Reese's Pieces, maybe was the idea. Um, but And you said you couldn't make a Pac-Man in five weeks. But, you know, conceptually, at least as a, you know, as an end user, eating dots and being chased by ghosts seems like an easier thing to create than what you did, which was a sort of multi-layered adventure. It does. And I think you, you make a really good point there, because 
What a game, when you look at a game on the screen, you think, well, these mechanics aren't that involved and look at all the stuff you have to go through and this other thing, that must be a more involved thing to do. But there's an illusion there because things that look simple to play aren't necessarily simple to program. Yep. And so what it takes to program and implement something is not the same as what is easy to play. Right. So it's true that you've seen, well, big deal. You put a little ET character, you lay a bunch of dots on the screen, you have them run around and do it. There's nothing to it. Whereas, you know, the ET, when you got spaceships and you're running around in pits and now you got to find, you got to, what, what zone am I in? Holy cow. Uh, but that was actually easier to program. So it's, that's the, uh, the, the black box effect, right? Mm-hmm. It's the technical illusion, you know, right. which I go into in the book. Yep. Uh, I think that's a part of what I call a nerd world country, <laughs> where I try to really explain some of the technology in a way that's uh, easy to understand. I hope I succeeded with that. Yes, you, yes, you did. You know, you, when you're talking about the ET story in the book, you mentioned that you had met. So, you, and again, folks should read the story. If you haven't heard it, it's a real, it's an iconic story at this point, but how Howard is you know, a summon to a tarmac to fly on a Learjet to meet Steven Spielberg of all people, you know, sort of like the biggest director of all time. But, and you, you mentioned you had already met with him several times before that. Was that while you were working on Raiders? Exactly. Yeah. That was during the Raiders of Lost Ark project. Were you running gameplay by him and as development went on? Uh, the truth is Steven Spielberg is a really sophisticated creative person. And what he tends to do is just choose people who mm-hmm. really, uh, he believes know what they're doing and let them work. So he would, I mean, I, I did an interview. I had an interview with him to get the chance to do Raiders. Wow. And uh, during that interview, I explained to him my theory of how he himself is actually an alien. And I did have this whole theory about how Steven Spielberg was an alien. I asked if he wanted to hear it. I laid it out for him. I actually got quote of the month in Games Magazine in 82 for calling Steven Spielberg an alien. But I think that got me the job. That enabled me to go ahead and do Raiders. And during the course of Raiders development, he would occasionally come up and I would demo the game for him and show him what I had. And we would have lunch and we would chat a little bit. But that was just a few times. And E.T. was the same thing, except there was no lunches. You know, he, he was just I like, presented the design. He said, okay, I went and did it. And then he came up and at the end of the project and approved it. Yeah. So switching video games for a moment, we know that one of the famous Easter eggs of yours is uh, hiding the name of then CEO of Atari, Ray Kazar, in plain sight in uh, Yar's Revenge. Uh, Ray, my Ray. Did you know that uh, Yar's or Yar was Ray backwards? Oh, I know that. Yeah, I, I know Howard likes his Easter eggs in the games, too. Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> I am a big fan of the Easter eggs. So uh, I know in the book you talk about how, you know, at first you have no dealings with Ray Kazar, but, um, or little, and then you, there you go uh, hiding his name in, in uh, your first breakthrough video game. Um, what was your relationship uh, with, with him? Was it uh, jovial? Was it contentious? You know, the first time I ever actually talked to Ray was after I had pulled, there's a whole story in the book about how I came up with the name of Yar's Revenge and how it was a way of playing off of Ray Kazar and using that to manipulate marketing into using my selection. <laughs> I tried to outmarket marketing by taking advantage of the fact that no one would check with Ray Kazar when I used his name without permission to, to be a part of the presentation. But Ray and I had a few dealings with each other. Uh, frankly, you know, I mean, I used to poke fun at Ray here and there at times, but I liked Ray. By and large, I liked Ray. 
but I never had to deal with Ray in a way like the people from Activision or the people from Imagine. The sure. people who went to Ray and said, look, I want this, you need to give us this. Uh, I didn't have to do that with Ray. When I went to Ray and said, hey, I'd like this, it was because he was coming to me saying, here's what we need you to do and it's a ridiculous thing to ask. He didn't know it was a ridiculous thing to ask, but he knew he needed it. And and I was someone that, uh, I don't know. I guess he respected to some degree, or he certainly thought capable. Because of you, you know, you talked about Yars being a lot of first, but, and uh, maybe you're just being humble, but, uh, you know, Yars not only did it have the first pause, the first backstory, um, but also the first uh, game that actually gave the programmer credit. Uh, and it sort of was sort of a roundabout way because you were credited first with creating the, 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 the comic book or the story behind the had you not created the comic book that went with the game, it seems like maybe maybe uh, it would have taken a little longer to get that. But it seemed like probably a lot of what you did wound up for whatever the short time Atari s- survived gave more power to the uh, programmers. Um, yeah, and I was not against that. Yeah, I like the idea of the programmers <laughs> having more representation and influence for sure. I just I have a different way of doing things. I just that person, I'm the person who, you know, you tell me, you know, is the glass half full or half empty? I'll tell you the glass is too large. (laughs) It's just going to be a different way of seeing things. And sometimes that puts people in the position of not knowing exactly what to do with me. (laughs) Because they know they're getting something they like from me, but they don't know what to do with it. And they don't like the fact that I'm sitting there looking and going, well, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. <laughs> which I like to do. So uh, what happened was I created the story. Right? I wrote a whole story, a backstory for it. It turned out to be the first backstory yep. for a video game that anybody had ever done. I just did it to push the title that I was trying to promote. And they decided to go with a comic book for it. And I thought, that's great. And then they thought, well, the comic book, because they have produced uh, publications before, they, they Atari would never give programmers credit. That was a major sore point. Yep. Atari wanted a game from Atari to be from Atari, not from any person. Activision and Magic had caught on the idea that if you have people who make games that people like, you can really market the person. You can say, here's another game from so-and-so. Atari just wanted it to be Atari. They didn't want the name of programmers out. They also didn't want people to know who to poach. Mm. <laughs> they were looking oh. for for, for uh, to, to, to hit up Atari's stable. But they had to do credits for the comic book. And so I saw the prototypes for it and I noticed there's credits. And because they were doing it for the game, they gave a game programmer credit. So I got a game programmer credit. And, uh, and that was the first time, and I think one of the only times that any Atari game programmer ever got credit. And that was because people had been fired for trying to get credit on games before. Mm. And as a lot of people know, I'm sure that there were Easter eggs. This is really the birth of Easter eggs, right? right? Because Easter eggs originally are not just a, a little bone mo for players to find, you know, <laughs> right. and a fun thing to look for. The purpose of Easter eggs originally was to be able to prove you are the author of a game. And the original Easter eggs were all about either initials or the name of the programmer appearing after some play sequence because Atari wouldn't acknowledge or uh, allow people to assert their authorship. Yeah. 
And, and so it, kind of busted that open. Yeah. Well, famously, it was Warren Robinette is responsible for what we, and Ernest Klein yes, documented yeah. in Ready Player One as the first Easter egg. And so it is about credit. That's, and of course you had some that included your initials uh, and some other callbacks to your uh, games. Right. But that was another first that I did because yeah. um, in Yars Revenge, the Easter, I had a secret Easter egg in Yars Revenge. And then I went to marketing and said, hey, you know, these Easter eggs, I think, increase the playability yeah. of games. It's not just, you know, a hidden thing, you know, because they get pissed off because they find out in retrospect, someone find an Easter egg right to Atari and go, oh, look, you know, I found this in. And they're like, ah, what did you do? Why are you people doing this? But yeah. they didn't have anyone who could check the work, you know, to find it. Right. But uh, I said to them, look, people like this. They like looking for it. This is a positive. Why don't we market it? Why don't we tell people it's there instead of trying to get angry and create, you know, internal turmoil? You know, Atari usually found time for both. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I remember uh, finding out about them from mostly word of mouth. I think some were published in Atari age, maybe that, you know, I think that's how we maybe learned about the one in adventure. I'm I'm not sure, but then it spread through the elementary school. You know, you've got to do this and that and you can figure this because some of them, I don't know how folks, even the most intrepid of game players would find uh, like the one in yours with your initials. That's crazy to do that. All that stuff there, but it is crazy. Some of them, it's, it is unbelievable to me that people found them. Yeah. Because initially we put them in so that they wouldn't be found. That was, it was like a secret thing. You didn't want anyone to find it. Yeah. And people still find it because you put a game out and you've got hundreds of thousands to millions of people playing uh, 10, 20, 40 hours each. That's an incredible amount of time on a game. When you do, when you put that much time, it's, it's, you know, the thousand monkeys on a typewriter producing the works <laughs> of Shakespeare, right? I mean, eventually everything that they can do, they're going to do. And, and, and they did. It was amazing. Yeah. So thinking about video games today, are you still curious about games? Are you still involved? Do you still have folks beckoning you to come back and create the next Yars Revenge 2? Okay. More revenge. Revengier. Something even revengier. I yeah. love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because we're not vindictive enough these yeah, days. Right. <laughs> oh, maybe you play against type in the Yars people in the, I never knew how to say it, Quaddle? The Cotiles, yeah. The Cotile. Maybe they make up in the next game. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I do get a lot of requests to, to do an updated version of uh, E.T., which I oh, think is huh. superfluous, as they say, or superfluous. Yeah. Sometimes I get the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> but uh, I don't really want to update E.T., and E.T.'s been updated. People have done that. But mm. I do think about coming back. I'm not currently in games yeah. development. I'm totally devoted to uh, being a psychotherapist now and writing. I enjoy writing. But there is one game. There was a game, a Yars Revenge sequel that I had planned mm. back at Atari. And then I was going to do it, but then I did Raiders. And then I was going to do it, and then I did E.T. And then I was going to do it, and then I blew that off and did another game that turned out to be Saboteur. Mm, right. And I ended up never really getting to it. It's a gameplay that's a fun, fresh gameplay, I believe. I think it's a very dynamic. It's a Yars-style Twitch kind of gameplay. I think it would be a lot of fun. I've never seen it done in all these years. So I'm still thinking... Uh, I'm going to find a homebrew, someone who can really do some 2600 code, mm. get together with them sometime in the not too distant future, and I'd still like to produce this game. I think it'd be a fun game. Although it can't be a Yars sequel, so maybe it'll be like HSW's Revenge. Yeah, spell someone else's name backwards. Let's see, what's Howard backwards? Draw how? Draw wow. Yeah, that was never a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about contemporary video games? Um, 
are they missing the mark or the spark of what was so essential, you know, of uh, the games, the vintage games of the 80s? Well, you know, games have come full circle too. And what I mean by that is, you know, games, when, when I was doing games, it was just, you know, a few simple screens. And that's what you do for a game. And they grew and they grew and they grew way beyond the capacity for an individual to produce. And console games got bigger and bigger and better and more engaging and more intriguing. And so on one level, they got way out of the zone of what an individual can creatively do. And so, and that's a shame because, you know, like a, a, a speedboat is cool, but, you know, a cruise ship, you can have a lot of fun on a cruise ship, right? A cruise ship can have a whole bunch of people having a really good time and do some really cool stuff. But the one thing you can't do on a cruise ship is change direction quickly. Right? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and a speedboat you can, but a speedboat can't carry that kind of supply and that many people. So working at Atari is more like being the speedboat person. And now console development has grown into this cruise ship that you really can't influence and shift the direction. So innovation, I think, is lost. And But what's happened now is that with the single screener games coming back and handhelds, and there's a lot of opportunities with apps and things like that now for people, once again, one or two people can sit down again and make a game. That's possible again. And that's when anybody's come full circle. It went way out of bounds in terms of ability for a creative individual to just assert themselves and offer something. And now that possibility is back. And that's exciting. That's really exciting to me because I like the idea that something fresh and creative has a chance to get out. Because when you get a big monolithic industry like the console business has become, you get narrow casting. Right. You get a certain a few styles of games and they're good games and they're well done. But you don't see like, holy cow, I've never seen something like that in gaming before. Part of it's also because people have been gaming for a generation or two now. So a lot of things have been. It's harder to innovate later than it is to innovate early Mm -hmm. in any endeavor. Right. Right. But uh, I think that's there's a huge aspect now where you can have both the big monolithic thing, which is fun. And but still have like wacky, wild left field ideas being asserted and offered in handhelds and through apps and Apple stores and things like that. It's 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 much broader now. And now you have both ends of the creative scale there. Also, another thing that's interesting is when I was doing games, a game would be 4K or 8K. And I mean, that's the whole game, 4,000 bytes. Now games are more than eight or 20 gig. Yeah. Right. So games are literally a million times <laughs> bigger than they were when I was doing them. I mean, absolutely. So the question is, are they a million times better? They're way better. <laughs> but I wonder if they're a million times better. I don't know the answer to that question. We can answer that on our show here. No. And part of the reason is, you know, I think about, uh, was it Nolan Bushnell who said uh, about easy to, was it easy to, I'm going to screw up the quote. Easy to learn, tough to master. The greatest thing about those games are you plugged it in, you turned it on. Maybe you didn't even read the manual, but you were able to just jump in and, you know, and go. Now I watched my daughter play a game the other day. I kept checking in to see if she got to the game. Now I'm still doing the tutorial. Yeah, it's learning curve to playing a game. That was one of the complaints I would receive at times because I did games that were tough to learn, tough to master sometimes. (laughs) You needed to have a little bit of manual session to get in because it wasn't quite as intuitive because... 
you know, the easy to learn, tough to master, that is, you know, that is Nolan Bushnell's fundamental law of video games. It's true. But that was invented for coin ops, mm. right? A coin op has to be easy to learn and tough to master because you want someone to put in the first quarter. So it's got to be easy to learn, but you want them to keep putting in quarters. So mm. it has to be tough to master. But a, a home game, home games, people put all their quarters down once and they never put another one in. So they're already bought in. I always felt if I can ask a little more of the user in startup, I can deliver a deeper game. Right. And so mm. I did that trade off. And the thing is, some people get frustrated because they can't just pick up the game and play it. Yours, you can for the most part. Some of my action games, you can. My pseudo adventure games, it's not as easy. Sure. But my feeling is once you, once the player's already invested, they're willing to put in a little extra effort to maybe get value from the game they just bought. Mm -hmm. And in that trade-off, I think comes a, a level of depth that I tried to bring to games because I wanted my games to be a richer play experience. That was just something that was important to me. And they were. And uh, as a result, they brought us many, many hours of joy as uh, children and challenged us in a way that we hadn't been challenged before. You know, in thinking back on them, is there a place for those games in the past, in our lives today? And is there a world in the future where uh, games may play a role in our lives again? Well, I think games speak to a part of us that's very important, and that is the desire to find a space where I can feel free to be, to have fun, be creative, and explore. And I think games then and games now have always done it. They do it in different ways. And as games, you know, we started with like a, one joystick with one button. Now we have very involved controllers and we're getting to VR and AR. Augmented reality, I think, is a huge thing. Video games are not just entertainment. Video games have generated uh, technologies that change our lives in every way, in so many places. Uh, they change other endeavors. Uh, they, they are for training people. The things that have come from the video game industry have changed movies. They've changed teaching. They've changed the way product development happens. They've changed technological innovation. Uh, video games have opened many doors and many things, and they will continue to do so because the thing that drives a lot of technology is passion hmm. and excitement and few things inspire that in developers like entertaining people, like the possibility of putting something out and I can say I made a lot of people happy. And when you think about that's the source of what's bringing a lot of modern technological innovation in place, I think there's a lot of room to be optimistic because passion is something we're always going to have. And when that's where passion takes us, I feel pretty good about our future. Very good. And now we do too. All right. Getting a little used to this kind of strange things happening now, I suppose. Yeah. Well, luckily, though, that's probably it, right? Because he, what did he say? How many ghosts? Like one? Uh, I didn't. I wasn't actually paying yeah. attention. You know, it, 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 we were so distracted yeah. by all the, the it, ghosty stuff. You know, Howard, what he said, though, it's a little bit encouraging, but, you know, it's I don't know. I feel like it's it doesn't get us any closer to enjoying the retro games today. You know, that at least that vibe of retro games. But that's fine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so anyway, so let me tell yeah. you about Billy Mitchell and what's going on with Billy Mitchell. So. Right, I I'm yep. starting to get the hang of this all right, now. Okay, all right, we're just going to have to go with the flow here. Okay. Hey, Dee. Hey. What are you doing here? 
I am the ghost of retro gaming present. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, we were we were warned we would. Yeah. You know, warned sounds bad. It's not ominous. No, I'm quite nice. <laughs> oh, very good. You've assuaged all my fears then. You know, this is perfect to talk to you because we've been talking about retro games and we're kind of losing our faith, I suppose, in how... Mm-hmm in ways that we can connect to what we loved as kids growing up as far as video games. And, and it seems like it's getting harder to remain connected to that. And you're, you're perfect because it seems like you've managed to do that somehow. Indeed. Taking a step back, what is your very first recollection of a video game? I don't remember how old I was, but mm. I do remember finding an old uh, Nintendo Game & Watch, the mm. Donkey Kong 2 with the dual screen. No, that's the first one, the, the orange one, right. Donkey Kong. Uh, I found it in the attic, and I think it was my brother's, and he's way older than me, so okay. he probably got it when it was new. Right. I was born in, in the 80s, mid-80s, so for me it was maybe when I was four or five years old, six maybe, so it was quite old at that time, and, and I found it, and it, it still worked. The batteries, I didn't have to change them, wow. and I played it for a whole I wouldn't let it go. And eventually, I think my mom hid it from me. Because <laughs> 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 it disappeared on a road trip, a road trip we did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was my first memory. Today, I have three of those just oh, for wow. the nostalgia and being able to go back to it, even if one of them accidentally breaks. <laughs> right. Wow. The, the, okay. So you have three of them. And you're, I should mention so folks know, I mean, your collection is. Uh, it's, it's enormous. If the internet is to be believed, you have over 4,600 games. No, no, no. That's a small that amount That was now. years ago. Oh, boy. Okay. I am up to like 8,600. Wow. <laughs> I just haven't uplo- updated my blog in a while. Okay. I'm, I'm mainly on Instagram nowadays. So you've doubled it since the last time you documented it. I'm a shopaholic for retro <laughs> games. So when you mentioned having the, uh, the, the Donkey Kong uh, Game & Watch, since that was the first game you connected with was that the first game you sought to recapture when you were starting to collect no i played a lot of games growing up like in the 80s and 90s i played nintendo 8-bit sega mega drive and all these games and uh, at friends places and i wanted everything i wanted a game boy and a nintendo but i never got it so when i was about 18 I uh, I fooled my dad into buying me a PS2 for Christmas. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like, I need a PS2. It's a very particular uh, DVD <laughs> player, and I need that that one. Uh, and he got it for me. So that was my first actual, my own console. Um, and I just bought games after games after games for that one and traded myself an Xbox, and I, I started playing games for that. And then I found the auction site line when I was like 1920 <laughs> and I, I would start earning some money after school and yeah. everything. Uh, and I just bought everything I never got as a kid, starting with mm. the Nintendo 8-bit and Sega Mega Drive, Sega Master System, Super Nintendo, and everything I could get my hands on. And I was just eager to try to play all the games. Um, and I don't remember, you know, what the games were called when I was a kid because I never owned them. So like right. just buying metroid for cheap back like 20 years ago it was like i played it once at a cousin's place and i didn't know the name so when i found it again 
got it in the mail and played it i'm like it's this game <laughs> it like, is the one i'll <laughs> just you know, watch this over you and i started crying because it was so beautiful <laughs> um <laughs> i guess yeah. it's curious to me that well i guess first of all so you mentioned you didn't a lot of these things you're you know recapturing now as you're older are things you didn't have when you were a child uh oh and yet you, you fooled your dad when you were 18 or 19 into getting a playstation that was your first console I guess why wasn't why didn't you have a console prior to that? Was a just a budget thing? Not everybody. I grew up on the countryside. Like my, okay. my parents thought that I should play in the forest and in nature. I and see. like you can't sit <laughs> in front of the TV all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they right. didn't want me to have one. Uh, but I did play. Like I played a lot of games at my cousin's place and my friend's place. <laughs> I played um, Super Mario Bros. One, two, three. Sure. Um, I played. Uh, Ice ice climbers and all these classic games. Right. Um, I played Castlevania at an older cousin's place. It was so cool. I loved it. Uh, and then I played all the Sega Mega Drive games like Ariel and the Sonic games and and Super Nintendo games. Uh, so I, I have like a fond memory of all these games and I wanted them like Tetris right. on the Game right. Boy. Yeah. So it's been a lot of joy and fun just being able to get these things and actually like play them on my own time and not knowing that I'm going home (laughs) and not having (laughs) it anymore (laughs) it's just uh there's so much joy in playing old games old games are just so much more well made I think like they had such limited amount of space to put code and 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 everything into it um, that they used every bit to just make it uh, like really enjoyable when you play it, right. like putting the enemies on the exact ex- like place to make it difficult and, and make it a challenge and, and using the music and the sound effects to like really make it uh, an awesome feeling and an enjoyment. Um, and I think a lot of new games uh, have lost that. Like you put so many hours of grinding into these huge adventures today, like Fallout and Skyrim, but just right. going around leveling up, it's not the joy of, of playing. It's like the joy of playing is when you get to figure stuff out for yourself. And when you beat it, you feel like, wow, I did that myself. Right. I didn't have a freaking tutorial and, and it was <laughs> difficult because it was freaking difficult. Yeah. 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 You didn't even have to read the manuals back then. You know, it was just, no. you kind of could jump in and just start. Exactly. Um, you know, I just thought you probably found the orange game and watch in the attic because your parents had hid it from your brother because he Maybe. had to, to get him into the forest <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> no, I don't think he was interested into it. Like he wasn't very into it. So we played one game together. Uh, in the younger days and that was nhl 95 or maybe 93 and i was very young at that age and he's like 13 years older so Mm. it was no match for him but after that he's he's not really into video games you know he's right uh he likes sports so when you get old enough to start collecting what is your strategy for finding things is it do you, is it start with those memories of the games you had at friends' houses and you try to track those down first? Or It started with that like 20 years ago and I had no clue what I was looking for. I just found games on, on websites that were selling them off for cheap, you know, online stores back in the early 2000s. Right. Now I'm, I'm, I, I've never really looked up the games that I'm buying 
I just buy games because I want to try them. And I look at the cover, mm. I look at what it's called, and I'm like, that sounds interesting. I want to buy it. <laughs> and if it's not too expensive, I buy it. And I've been buying things that have been really cheap for many years. When the prices started going up here in Sweden, because a lot of people started collecting, sure, I turned sure. to eBay and the US and I started buying so many things from the US because you could still find uh, Nintendo cartridges for like a dollar 49 cents and I started collecting so many games from the US and other regions where cheaper um, and eventually those started going up in price and then I turned to the Japanese scene and I found that oh my god there's the Famicom the Super Famicom and all these games and they have it even a bigger library of games than we got and you got because right. right. it's like everything's made there. And we just got to see like a tiny portion of it. We got like maybe 214 games in Sweden for the Nintendo 8-bit. Right. You had like over 750 something in the US and they had 1,054 wow. or something. <laughs> it's like, wow, what did, what did I miss? Yeah. Uh, so, so I started buying a bunch of games from there that was really cheap at the time. And it was just so much fun to just experience all these games. And of course, I've bought a bunch of games that are just strategy games in Japanese language that are really about a tax man who's like calculating people's taxes. They're like, what the hell can it do? It's a job. Yeah, that's a job. You can't see it on the cover because it's just like, oh, there's a man in a a suit. Maybe it's, you never know. The Japanese are weird. They have some (laughs) like really obscure games. And sometimes you find amazing titles like the Utsurun Desu that's about a a man in a beaver suit and it's a platformer and he's just running around trying to go to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) it's fucking amazing i love those games uh so it's i i just find it so enjoyable to just discover new games that i've never played before and i keep everything i'm a hoarder i can't get rid of stuff (laughs) but also because even if something's really it can be so that is good Mm, or interesting to just see uh and i love having people over to just show them these obscurities and weird things or really games (laughs) (laughs) or really amazing games that they've just never heard about um and that's just turned into like a passion i just want to find and experience all these these games that are not like the mainstream ones right i know super mario is good and i love super mario but do I play it all the time? No, not anymore. It's like, I have it. I have all of them. Uh, and if people come and they're like, oh, do you have Super Mario? Of course, here it is. Play it. Uh, but have you tried? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have to you know, show them some some other weird games. Because have you tried to earn a Hawaiian vacation or pay taxes or whatever those games are? But I do know that you have a Japanese salaryman boss that is putting <laughs> meatballs at you on all four legs. I've seen an image of that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. Best game. I, I like everybody's visiting who's visiting me. I, I always force them to sit through and play the <laughs> whole game because all the bosses are hysterical and it's just so much fun to see them go through it. It's a great game. So it's it seems like you just sort of you know follow your passion as it goes as far as finding yeah. games. Uh, that said, are there games that are in your mind? or that you know about that exist in catalogs somewhere that have eluded you and you would love to get your hands on? Yeah. Yeah. There's loads of them. I'm, I'm very impulsive when it comes to buying games. If I see somebody post something and I'm like, Ooh, 
I don't have that. That looks interesting. I look it up on eBay and I'm like, ooh, that's really expensive. And then I save the search and maybe I do it later. Or sometimes I just go like, ah, f- it. I'm just going to buy it anyway, mm-hmm. even though it's fucking expensive. Oh, yeah. I have so many things that it's hard to find, like the ones that aren't the rare, pretty expensive things, you know. Right. Um, but I, I do buy a lot of things on impulse, like whenever I come across just any game with like weird cover art or, or a fun title or something I just don't have. But I have been running out of space a little bit here. So uh, <laughs> I do I do take kind of care on like at least turning and looking at the back to see, is it a platformer, a shoot 'em up or a puzzle game? Hmm. Yeah, it looks like, so, like it. Then I'm going to buy it. If it's a strategy game, RPG or anything that I hate, sports games, <laughs> I'm just going to go like, mm, maybe not no. this one. <laughs> I don't really have that much space for it. You say about impulse buys. And one of my, one of my big re- recent regrets is that, and I know you have a Vectrex because I've seen it in your, mm-hmm. in your room. I'm one of the photos there. I've been, I've been coveting one of those since I was a kid. Cause we had a 2600 growing up and that was it. That was the last time my parents bought a console and that was it. The only consoles I have now, which are a lot of vintage ones They're are because amazing, I went got them. But the Vectrex, my friend Pete had one and it was like in a basement like more like a cellar. It was like, you know, this stone underground where the Vectrex was there, like, you know, on a pedestal and we would play it. I saw one at a show. It was 300 us. This was like two summers ago. And I thought that's a lot of money. I don't know that I could just do that. Now I look on eBay. They're like $700. I bought one for about $400 maybe, but it was maybe $500 because it, well, it depends on what time it was and what their dollar currency was. But yeah, around that price. And it was like with every single game that was officially released with it. That's Oh, that's amazing. So I think that yeah, that's a pretty good price. That was a couple of years ago. And then I bought homebrews for it since then, because there's a lot of great homebrews being made for it yeah, right. still. Yeah, I've seen, I see those for the 2600. There's something about those vector graphics that's so appealing. So beautiful. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like you were saying, the idea that the simplicity of games and sounds, there's some easier way for us to, I don't know, get those good endorphins or dopamine, like, you know, that reward yeah. that, hang on, this is my Swedish, I'm going to try, that Spilgladia. Spilgladia. I was going to talk about it. Like, I, I thought about bringing it up before, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm glad you brought it up. Spilgladia. Spilgladia. Yeah. Spilgladia. Okay. That is play happiness. Hmm. It's like the play happiness you feel when you're playing a game and it's pure joy, like the yeah. pure joy of gaming. You don't really have that in a lot of new games. It's just like fast rewards and you get achievements and you get all of this. And oh my God, you started the game. Oh, you watched yeah. it. Congratulations. <laughs> so you're like, I'm getting achievements. But then afterwards you're like, and what did I actually achieve? But I feel <laughs> empty inside. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that kind of... I this guy Eagle Raptor he made like such a great comparison with uh, with the games like when you compare for example Castlevania the original ones with with or or, or Mega Man the original ones with like the newer ones like the Castlevania uh, on the on the Game Boy Advance where it's much more fast and it's much more fast paced you have a lot more you can like whoosh 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 you can mm. shoot in every direction and everything like right. that <laughs> uh, it's easier. But it's still kind of fun to do it. It's kind of like eating a big bag of chips. <laughs> the other one is like having a really nice dessert, like a really fancy dessert at a restaurant. You're going to enjoy it 
a little bit more, but it's still really nice to like just have yeah. some, you know, candy or, or, or crisps when you're right. watching a movie and you're just like binge eating it. Oh, yeah. uh, so they're good in different ways. But I do appreciate like the older games much more. And for me, usually the simpler the, the concept and the game is, the more fun it can be. Mm. Like all the Atari games, there's so many that are, I've, I've just grown to love it more and more because of this simplicity. It's right. just like a really simple concept and you just steer and sometimes you steer and push one button, yep. <laughs> but it can get really hard if you have a game like Dragonfire where it's oh, still yeah. Yeah, it's so tough. fast and you have to like jump and, and you have to like be so like precision in every single movement you do with the joystick and the button. Right. And it, it's, it, it's thrilling to just push yourself to the limit to see how far you can reach, how good you can get at it. Uh, so I usually just return to a few games that I really love and keep going back to. And then they change after a while when I get sick of them. Yeah. Or well, you've got a lot of choices. There's hundreds. Yeah. So yeah. what do you, what do you think about, uh, there's a whole economy now, it seems of, of, of people playing games on Twitch and other people watch them play the games. I've never understood that. <laughs> it's like sports. I don't, I don't enjoy running after a ball. Uh, but I, I can understand people might enjoy it. It's exercise and they have a team sport and it's fun. But I'd, I understand even less how people can just watch the chase the ball. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing with like playing a game. I yeah. love playing a game and I understand that. But watching somebody else play a game, I'm like, why don't you just want to play it yourself? And I, I understand if it's retro games and you don't have a console or in whatever, you can get an emulator, it's free. Yeah. There's so many, like, there's some, some people I understand, like the angry video game nerd. I can enjoy an episode or two with him because he makes it more cinematic right. and, and, like, <laughs> makes it fun and fast paced. But just watching somebody have an unboxing video. <laughs> God, this is boring. How long is it? 40 minutes? No cuts, no editing, no yeah. nothing. I do fear for our, like, you know, I've got two daughters and so much of their entertainment seems to be watching other people have fun. Like you're saying, yeah. unboxing or yeah. watching, you know, my one daughter will watch other people play the game that she has. She has yeah. the game. Like, why don't you play it? Experience I, it yourself. I very rarely look up gameplay and it's only if I've been stuck for hours on a freaking right. game on Xbox and I'm like, what the hell was, this? you know, right. yes. and I look it up and I'm like, okay, that's how I do it. Okay. And then I turn it off. I just go to the point where I'm like, okay, got the solution. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but I don't have the uh, patience to just sit and watch people play games. I want to play it myself rather. Yeah. I can yeah. watch people here play. Like if I have friends over, I can. Right. I love watching my friends play and experience the games that I show them. But that's right. a different thing. I'm there live interacting with them. Yeah, that's so. that seems to be uh, maybe a huge distinction between game retro games, so games in the '80s, '90s, and today. Is that a lot of the games today allow us to be distant? You know, even your massive multiplayer online, you're playing with people who you'll never meet not otherwise have a real friendship with, or you're yeah. watching people play games online. Like you're saying, sitting in a room with somebody, that's at least human connection. Yeah. You know, we're having a shared experience with the family or friends. I'm scared for what the future holds for our, our children. Yeah, me too. I think it's, it's kind of sad, you know, because I, I do play a lot of Xbox games as well. And sometimes it's much easier to just stay in the living room and put on an Xbox game. And, but a lot of them are so easy 
in comparison. And of course, there are some pearls that are being made that are like hidden gems or even like some popular ones like Axiom Verge and stuff that are really good games. But it's one in a 2,000 or 5,000 that are being made that are actually good. And I buy a lot of games on Xbox, (laughs) mainly like the the online small ones that you buy on the Xbox store that are uh, not too expensive and that have like that retro art like with um, pixel graphics and everything. So many are so (laughs) And I go through and I get the achievements and then you're like, what was that? Yeah. What did I do? (laughs) How many hours did I waste? Yeah. Uh, What would be your desert Island console and game? Oh, I've thought about this before. I would really be on a deserted Island and I would be like, only one game or something, you know, I would bring yeah. something that is at least doable and interchangeable every time we play it. And that would be Tetris. Uh, mm. And I would bring some type of Game Boy that has a solar panel charging. So you wouldn't need new batteries because you wouldn't wow. have electricity, I assume, on a deserted island. So right. <laughs> I've thought this through, you know, I need to get a solar power thing for my Game Boy. Um, <laughs> that would be perfect. But apart from that, there's so many systems I wouldn't be apart from. And I, I go in various stages through different systems. Like I've loved the NES. I go back to it sometimes. I buy a lot for it. Uh, I love the Famicom, uh, which is basically Japanese equivalent. Sure. Uh, and I love the PC Engine when I discovered that. Turbo Graphics mm. for you in the US. Right. Oh my God, that system has so many hidden gems. Like games that we just never saw the light of day anywhere outside of Japan that are amazing and just made for this system. Cause you know, every other system had just the same ports of the same games on every single system. It's Pac-Man, right. Pac-Man there and uh, an altered beast and whatever. But that one had so many unique titles. Also the Neo Geo, so many great unique titles right. and both have a lot of shoot 'em ups and I love shoot I think it's interesting that, you know, like, you know, unfortunately we're all facing this global pandemic now. And I know my family, we're planning, you know, my wife and I, we go, when this first broke out, we're raiding the grocery store and getting toilet paper and canned food. And I'm buying a hand crank charger for my, we don't know what's going to happen, but you, you are already planning on getting a solar powered adapter for your uh, Game Boy (laughs) so you can play Tetris and you'll be all set. Yep. (laughs) That's all I need. (laughs) All right. With that, I will say thank you so much, Haiti. I really appreciate this so very much. You made us feel better about where we're at maybe with retro games today. We're still concerned about the future, but there's still a way to remain connected at least. uh, And that's encouraging. You're never too old to play video games. Okay. So we just got to go with it now. I I see what Brett was saying. I'm starting to feel a little bit better with what Haiti said, because there is a way to still stay in touch with those things that we grew up with. Yeah, if only the future had something to offer us, though. Yeah, you're right, because part of it was getting something new, like those Christmases when we were kids, and that yeah. seems to be done. Okay, well. But anyways, yeah. what's what's going on with that uh, Billy guy? Oh, yeah. Trying to do 80s right. news. I forgot about that. Okay, so anyway, so Billy Mitchell. Uh, I'll, okay, now I see, I think we're getting the gist of this now, right? Yeah. Tommy, Tommy Tallarico. Yo, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm the, uh, you know, the father of Christmas future. And, uh, you know, we're Yo. talking about the new Intellivision Amico 
is is coming to the future and I'm and I'm here to tell you about it and tell you everything's going to be great. Oh, well yeah, usually if you're from the future, <laughs> usually how these things go, you're going to warn us about some impending doom if lest we change our ways. No, no, no. Well, I I guess yeah, I I guess that's how it oh, usually goes, but yeah. not on this show. Oh, very good. Well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, so Tommy, so much has been said about your uh, experience as a composer for video games, over 300 video games that you've worked on, uh, I don't know, numerous concerts, uh, so many firsts, so much ground that you've broken as a, just as a composer for video games. And I know about your history there. I guess what I don't know is your, your history with video games prior to music. What was the, what was your first exposure as a, as a young person to video games that you recall? Yeah. So, um, it would have been around 1974. So I'm 52 years old now. So it, I was born in 68. So I would have been about seven years old. And um, my my dad worked for Mass Mutual, which is a you know a big uh, life insurance uh, company. Sure. And we grew up in Massachusetts, right. uh, or I grew up in Massachusetts, and Springfield, where the home office of oh, Mass right. Mutual is. And one of my dad's friends uh, at Mass Mutual was a ex-baseball star, Major League Baseball player by the name of Mike Andrews. Mike Andrews uh, played second baseman for the world champion Oakland A's back then in the early 70s. He was later on the Boston Red Sox as well. When he retired, he, um, you know, he had just retired. He he started kind of you know, was, was hired by mass mutual to, you know, do, do certain things. And so that's how him and my dad met. And we went over his house and he had a Coleco Telstar Mm. and it was basically a pong ripoff. Like, you know, like all the machines were back then. And I remember we went over his house and he had, you know, he had kids as well, but I got to tell you, it was, it was like, life changing what what people maybe of modern day or younger people today don't recognize or or ever knew about is that you know a time before video games mm. could be played on a television so here we are this magical box <laughs> and 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 if right. you turned a knob right something on the screen would move. It was like, what? Even though it was just a little rectangle white thing and you were two of them and you were just bouncing a ball back and forth. It was, uh, it was mind blowing. Again, you know, we didn't have even remote controls back then. I mean, they existed, but we didn't, you know, only the super rich kids had things like, you know who the remote control was in my house? Me. You know, my dad's (laughs) like, Hey, go up and change your channel. Yeah. Yes, sir. You know, boom, boom. And, and so the kids were the remote controls back then, but, and, but so we didn't even have like a magic thing you could click to change the channel, let alone here's this thing where you can move. So, so that was our first experience. It was mind blowing. The next day, my dad goes and buys a Coleco Telstar for the home. And, and that was, and we had that to, from 75 to about 1980. Mm-hmm. Then in 1980, Christmas of 1980, uh, mom, dad, Santa Claus, whoever, I don't, I don't remember exactly who it was, yeah. but, uh, you know, brought an Intellivision uh, mm-hmm. to, the, to the home. And me and my brother, you know that that's the thing about about that time when when you're when you're a kid during that era and stuff like 
that opening that present on that, it's, it's a memory that just gets burned into you forever because again, something that people from today might not appreciate from back then is that, you know, now you can walk into a household and they got, Oh, we got an Xbox. we got a PlayStation. We got Nintendo (laughs) over here. We got the computer. We got, you know, everybody's got like seven video game machines now. Oh, we got last generations and the one before that. And we got the PlayStation two up in the rec room and, you know, back then, when you open that box, it, it, people didn't have like Atari, ColecoVision, and Intellivision in their home, right? <laughs> yeah, you no, you, you had one system, yeah. and most kids back then had Atari 2600, right? The, 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 the yeah. original piece. So to open the Intellivision, which was $299 back in 1979 when oh, yeah. it first came out. <laughs> the equivalent of about $800 today. Wow. And we were not a wealthy household at all, right? right. We were lower middle class. Yeah. And so to open that, yeah. oh, like it was the greatest present me and my brother ever, ever opened. And, and I can just, I talk about it and I get tears oh, yeah. in my eyes and goosebumps because like my parents worked so hard for that. Like that was, you always had the triple A present, right? That they <laughs> right. saved. It builds up to it. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was it. And, right. and boy, again, in 1980, you know, I'm 12 years old. You know, you'll, 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 you'll never forget that for the rest of your life. And my brother was younger. He was eight and boy, we just played that and the whole family played it and my friends would come over and we'd play it. You know, sometimes we'd go over to my friend's house and play Atari, but in television was such a step beyond back then. Yeah. Everybody would pile into my house and the, oh my God, look at the realistic animations of the running man oh, running yeah. down <laughs> the first base or whatever. So it, it, you never forget it, right? These memories never leave our heart and mind. And, and I can remember you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, me and my brother, and I, and I still have these drawings and diagrams and, and, and uh, designs, you know, we would, we would say someday, you know, we're going to make video games. And, 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 and I would even say, I'm going to be the president of Intellivision someday. No. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Wow. My brother is my witness. And, and again, we, I used to draw the Intellivision logo. I, I, I like I said, I still, I still have the art. Um, I used it in my Ted talk. In fact, if anyone ever wants to check out my Ted talk on the game industry, I just put in t- Tommy Tellerico, Ted, you'll see some of those you know, logos I used to draw on the game designs. And I used to write letters to the game companies and they would write me back and stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, this is before email, of course, right? Handwritten letters. Well, you manifested it. It was. It, no, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a big believer in the secret, yeah, you know, that's positive that mental like. attitude, the law of attraction. Right. And yeah, in television and everything I've done in my career, whether it's video games, live as a touring show, I used to put on video game concerts oh, in my okay. neighborhood. I would, I, would, I would invite all my friends over. I'd charge them a nickel. I'd, I'd put uh, in television on the TV. I'd, I'd go to the arcade and record all my favorite video game songs on my b- dad's big ass cassette recorder, <laughs> 8D batteries, the thing weighed 50 pounds. <laughs> And, and then I would, I would press play and I'd grab a guitar and I would play along with the video game music, with, with the video games behind me on the, wow. on the television for my <laughs> friends. So yeah, so video games live, music and television, 
these are all just things that were manifested from a, you know, 10, 12 year olds brain. You know? We got to start drawing things and writing things down, right? I do, but like this podcast will be successful. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, on my <laughs> vision board right now, I have a big and the new in television right there. Yeah, so. Right. Very good. Yeah. I, we were at an Atari 2600 household. Yeah. Our first system was the Odyssey. And oh, yeah. I don't know how my dad Out afforded there. that. He must've got it used from somebody. We weren't, we didn't have any money. And yeah. then the big purchase that was at 77 or 78, we probably got it uh, 2,600. And then that was it. We were done. My parents were done buying consoles. So right. I had a friend like yeah. you that we would go to his house. Cause it was like, you know, we could tell this was the next generation of video games. That's um, great. That's funny. So we know you've had some setbacks with the television Amico. It yeah. sounds to me now, as you describe that, Oh, what a disappointment it must be that that couldn't have come out in October. Like it was originally planned and be around to, be that Christmas gift for some kids, you know? Yeah. You know, we, we have a very, um, you know, the, the, it's going to come out when we're ready, right? Sure. We're not going to come out with something half baked or half, you know, I mean, it seems to be, you know, it, it seems to be the, the way the games are being made now is like, Oh yeah, we're going to come out and then we'll patch yeah. the game over yeah. the next Fix couple of months. Market, yeah. I mean, look at, look at the big controversy with cyberpunk, which just right. came out, right. Where they issued an apology. So, sorry, we <laughs> came out with this game and we're not finished. Um, or, or we're, you know, we're, yeah. we're still going to be uh, patching it up and, and that's fine. I mean, I, I get it right. Technology is, is crazy. And until you have millions of people playing it, sometimes you don't, you don't, you know, sure. know all the situations that can happen. So, uh, you know, kudos to them for addressing the problem, of course, but CD project, but, but the, um, but yeah, you know, you know, when we sat out to create, uh, to make this, create this thing and, and, and new platform and new ecosystem. And, you know, when you, when you sit down and, and write the business model and the business plan three, three and a half, four, almost four years ago, you certainly don't put a, uh, uh, you certainly don't <laughs> pandemic put, is put, a, put a line item, a worldwide pandemic, <laughs> everything's going to close down. No one can meet in the office and yeah, the whole world's going to change. You know, the, the pandemic really, I mean, we were on track for, for October, uh, 10, 10, 2020. Yep. And then, you know, in, in March when everything started to go crazy and then we, we couldn't meet anymore. And again, we have, you know, we have 50 people on our team and, and when those people, you know, when the core hardware team can't be in the same room together and keep in mind our whole thing, why we're different is that every game has single player, but every game has couch co-op as well. Right. Meaning, you know, that old retro sensibility. When we were growing up, we didn't have online play. We didn't have, you know, this. So we, we don't, we're not putting any of that in there. We don't have online play, wow. but it's all about playing in a room together on the same couch together. So again, when, when you have 50 games in development and when you can't even get together to test those games, <laughs> the multiplayer. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, so, so, but, but we made a decision and we said, you know what, let's, let's push the date. We sat down with our retailers and we said, let's, let's do another date. And you know what? Halo's delayed. Oh yeah. The Ford Bronco is delayed. <laughs> so, so if like Ford and Microsoft 
are getting delayed. What do you think, you know, a little David versus Goliath here? What, what, what do you think is happening, you know, to the smaller guys? But that's okay. Oh. We're in a walk before we run strategy. We're playing the long game and you can only make a first impression one time. Mm-hmm. We don't want the thing to come out and it's half baked. Right. And so we'll, we'll, we'll wait and we'll, we'll do it right. And we're, look, folks are willing yeah. to wait because it looks like you actually have a product unlike, you know, some other uh, retro console <laughs> that's uh, maybe selling vaporware. So, look, uh, our family, we're an electronic family, but, you know, we've got a mix of consoles, but uh, in our families are also more casual gamers. And we know there's, what, like something like 200 million console gamers, but there's like 2 billion casual three gamers, billion. Or 3 billion on uh, mobile 3.1 billion people playing mobile games. Yeah but only 200 million hardcore gamers playing on Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo Switch, and the PC. They call themselves the master race, you know? (laughs) And, and and, And so there's 200 million hardcore gamers. Will, that means that, if you do the math, less than 7% of the people in the world that play video games, only 7% of them are hardcore gamers. Our machine is targeted to those other 93%. Now, by the way, will hardcore gamers like and buy buy Amico as well? Yeah, sure, eventually, because this will be the machine they pull out when their non-gamer friends come over, or maybe (laughs) they would play with their wife or their kid, whatever, right? And and so, um, but yeah, but we're focused on that hyper-casual or casual or non-gamer. I give you the Wii as an example. The Wii came out 15 years ago. At the time it came out, it was the third biggest selling console of all time. It beat Sony. It beat Microsoft in that era. It didn't have the biggest technology. It didn't have the most fancy graphics. But my mom bought a Wii. (laughs) Why? So she could go bowling. That's it. It was simple. She didn't have to read an instruction manual. She just did this. It sold 102 million units, generated 50 billion in revenue, and no one ever followed up with it, right? And so, so we're kind of taking that we approach, except we're targeting casual gamers. That is our basis. Because the we, like they did, you know, the Wii Sports, and then they really never followed up too much. There was like Wii Sports Resort, but they went right back to their wheelhouse. Mario, Zelda, Smash Brothers, Pikmin, uh, Pokemon. Boom, because that's what Nintendo does great. They, they create content for their fan base better than any other company. They know their fan base. And my mom is not their fan base, right? So, so won't this be interesting to see a company who's actually targeted you know, where we're targeting, you know, people who normally don't get targeted, whether it's grandparents, young kids, non-gamers, casual gamers, hyper gamers, retro gamers, the guys our age, that's who we're, you know, focused on, not the Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo crowd, which is normally, you know, teenagers, to 30 year olds, right? Yep. That That's that's mm-hmm. the hardcore game of those 200 million people are typically, uh, you know, uh, typically, you know, like I say, 13 to 35. That's actually not our target. Um, maybe the parents who are in their, in their mid thirties, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of our, our, our game, our plan, our, our unique window we see this huge gaping hole in the industry and we're going to yeah. drive a truck through it. There's nothing irritates me more than when I have to pick up the instructions to a game because I can't figure out how to play yeah. it. That, 
That right? drives me nuts. Well, you know, you know what happens to me a lot, Ray? I don't know if this is, if you guys experience this too. It's like, as we get older and our, you know, our time for game, like when we were in our twenties and thirties, yeah, we could play 13 hours at a time, boom, on a weekend. Right. We didn't, yeah. you know, we didn't have responsibilities that much. We did, you know, we didn't have wife, kids, whatever, you know? And so the older you get, the less time you have to play. And it, and a lot of the modern games, um, you know, whether it's Spider-Man on the PlayStation four or red dead redemption two, it's like, you know, I, I open these games. I said, okay, I, I'm going to set aside a couple hours today. The wife's going, she's going to be out shopping or the, the kids are at a friend's house or whatever. Right. So I'm going to carve out this time. And then you, 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 you go into the man cave, right? And then you, you put the game in and it's like, it takes an hour to update the firmware oh, yeah. and the load. Okay, okay. Well, okay. Well that yeah. sucks. Okay, yeah. fine. We dealt with that. We came back later and then you learn these and they're so intricate and they're so beautiful and they're so, but then you're like, you're learning all of these controls and then life happens. Then it's like, okay, I kind of get it. And then like three days passes. Right. And then you go to pick it up again. And it was like, I yeah. forget everything, oh, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah. oh, and, and when you think about un, unshrink wrapping, you know, you're taking the shrink wrap out of that next game and you're thinking, gosh, do I have like 50 hours that I'm going to spend on this game? There's so many things I, I should do. And the dog wants to go for a walk and the kids are crying and I could have built a shed in the back. My <laughs> wife wants to go out and she hasn't been out to dinner in a week, you know? And, and so it's like, so, so again, what we're trying to do is let's create these simple, easy, fun, anyone can understand. And they're not three-hour experiences. You get in, yep. play 15, 20 minutes, boom, maybe do another game for 15, 20, and then you're out and you're feeling good about it, you know? So, and, and that's the other thing. When you think about video games, modern video games, it's, you know, you think of it's a solitary experience. Yeah, you know, for the most part, I'm generalizing, right? And so, and and when I think, oh, I'm going to play Red Dead Redemption for the next three or four hours, I have a feeling of guilt. Mm. I really do. Like, the right. older you get, you kind of feel a little guilty because yes. of all the other things that you could be doing with your family. In television, on the other hand, it's the opposite. We're not selling guilt. <laughs> We're selling time with your friends and family, yeah. right? You don't feel guilty about spending time with your wife and okay, let's do a puzzle. How many puzzles we can we do at this point with COVID, right? How many, how many more mon games of Monopoly or Scrabble can you play, right? And card games. And so, you know, bringing this out, the timing of this might be perfect because it might be a time where people are now wanting to get back together uh, after not being able to, or if they are still stuck in their homes to, to some extent, Wow, here's a brand new thing where we can play at home with with the family. So, so we're we're liking how it's. I always try to look at the glass half full. Yep. So I'm I'm trying to look at COVID and say, hey, maybe there's an advantage there for us in in some. You know, you hate to say that because it's such a a bad thing, but you always try to look at the positives. You know.
So, you know, you're talking about uh, the simplicity of these games. And yeah, that look, we all love playing video games or doing things that sort of reward us, you know, and give us those good endorphins or dopamine uh, by accomplishing things. And that's what I love about those retro games. You could plug in a cartridge and boom, you're going. You're that square, I'm that square or whatever. Uh, so when you're building new games, and I know you've got some original IP and you're doing some sort of new takes on some retro stuff from the Intellivision library and, and others, Atari library. Atari, yeah. yeah. Um, are you trying to get to that essence? Are you, are you sort of reverse engineering or taking a look at well, what made this yes. yeah. successful in the first place? Exactly. That's what we start with first. When I'm, when I'm sitting down designing a new version of, of Missile Command, let's say, right? Yeah. Um, so you look at Missile Command as a game and you say, well, what, you know, what was, what is the essence of Missile Command, which came out in the late seventies, right? Or yeah. And, and, and okay, it's these beams coming down and it's the idea that, oh crap, I got to do this before they hit my yeah. thing. That's the essence of the game. That's the core, right? So I look at that and go, you know, and, and so many companies when they do, you know, when they reimagine or, or do a new version of the game, they're like, well, how can we put this in 3D? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're like shooting up and you yeah. can, and it's a first person shooter. Yeah. And, and then you can have the dual analog stick yeah. with the controller to like this button launches this and this launches yeah. that. And it's like, oh my God, shut, stop. Right. The, the original game had a rollerball. Yeah. And one button, or actually, you had three buttons because you had the left, the right, right, and the, the center, right, and three buttons, and the and and the, and the the rollerball. And I even simplified that. And so, um, and you look at that and say, okay, so let's keep that, right? And and the farther you progress, the more the missiles come down, the more ah, you know. But how can I now incorporate couch co-op? Well, wouldn't it? be cool if you could play up to eight players wow. all at the same time, eight different, you know, reticles on screen, all different colors, mm -hmm. eight different, you know, where everybody's shooting. And now you're as a group of people, maybe it's just the three of us, the group of people are now on the same team helping this. And so, you know, the way you write the code and design it is, well, if it's one person and it's level one, it's going to come out with its thing. But if there's two people, okay, we'll make it 20% harder now. If there's three people, make it 30% more stuff coming down. So, right. you know, you're always, it's always going to be the same sort of like panic level of, ah, you know, it's not like, oh, it's three things, but there's eight people. So we, we, it's so much, it's not easier right. when you know, the more people you, you get in, you have to adjust the game design for that. But then I thought, but wait a second, let me really flip this on his head. What if, so that's great, co-op, we're all on the same team, right? Saving Earth or whatever. But what if we were all against each other? Hmm. And so what if the three of us where I could send missiles to Will and he's got to defend, <laughs> wow. but then Ray is sending missiles to me, so I got to defend my, so you're defending and throwing wow. And it's the three of us. So, so we have a co-op mode in Missile Command and we have a versus mode. But what you won't see is big, fancy 3D complex controllers. Right. I mean, here's one of our controllers right here. And 
And the the the, and the beauty of Missile Command, see, no one's been able to really do a game. I'm, I'm bringing Missile Command as, as only one example of the sure. 50 games we're working on. But, but the, here's a perfect example of one of the reasons why you can see the accelerometer and the gyroscope. You can see that little oh, ball yeah. moving on the screen. I don't know how well you can see it, but... Yeah. Um, but you get so, um, but we have a color touch screen as well, and this is a capacitive touch screen, so it's the exact same stuff that, that you have on your mobile device. You can sure. see how you know how, how quick it moves. But what we did is instead of a glass surface, because you know, you don't want to hand uh, if you're doing a family console, you don't want to give a kid a piece of glass, they, they throw it on the ground. So, this is this is actually polycarbonate. Mm. And so uh, what that means is it's got the strength of and the smoothity, is that a word? Smoothness. <laughs> smoothness of glass. Uh, but but it but it's but it's easy. You can slam it on the ground. It's not gonna chip or crack or or, wow. or scratch. I mean I mean you could scratch it if you had put a knife to it, but but you know, for normal play, it's not gonna happen. And then, of course, you know, we have our patented Intellivision disc, which is, you know, 360 degrees, so easy to just, you know, rotate around. So you, you ask those three billion gamers, casual gamers who play mobile and non-casual or they call themselves non-gamers, a lot of them, too, because, no, I'm not a gamer. Yeah, but you play video games on your mobile device every day. Mm. No, but I'm not a gamer. Uh, <laughs> so, you, know, you ask those people, why don't they play Xbox, PlayStation, and Switch? And they all say the same thing. It's like, well, the controllers are too complicated, and right. the games are too complex, and I'm just not dexterous enough to, like, blah, blah, blah. And so something like this, where it's like, oh, you want to go right? You, you press, the, you, you swing to the right, left. I mean, it's like a mouse almost. It's like, oh, I move my hand and the thing goes on screen. I get it. Same thing with this. Very easy to understand. But a game like, and then we have big buttons on the side. We have, a, like I said, accelerometer. We have wireless charging as well. So you just put it back on the, onto the yeah, console. And it starts lighting up. We have force feedback. Here's a speaker, a microphone built right in. So very unique. But a missile command is a perfect example. You can't do missile command well because you never had the roller ball. Right. Try to do missile command with like a D-pad. It's crap. Yeah. Or an analog stick is garbage too. Because remember, analog sticks always pull to the center, right? So when you right. pull back the stick, it's the spring back to the center. Very difficult to do a missile command type of game. Here we go, though, with our missile command, and you can see us demo us this on our Intellivision uh, YouTube channel. We have a, we show missile command being played. Now, wherever your thumb goes mm. on here, that's where your reticle is oh, going right. on screen. So simple, so easy. Right. You you don't even look at the controller. You just it's just smooth as silk. But here's where it gets even better. Instead of having three buttons like the old time, I, I feel like the ShamWow guy. But wait, <laughs> there's more. But wait. Uh, no, but, but the cool thing about how unique this controller is, is that, is that this now becomes a directional button, right? So oh, the, okay, the, original, sure. the original Intellivision pad had 16 directions. This has 64. So, uh, but... Wow. So, so you're, you're, you're using your reticle like this. And if you want to shoot from the center, you press up. If you want to shoot it from the, the left or the right, 
you just, you, you do it like that. So you don't even need three buttons now. You just press the direction. And if you hit down, it just automatically fires from the closest one that has bullets mm. in it. So, so this is how simple. And all of our games use this very, very unique, simple, easy controller in a way that no one's ever seen or done before. It's, it's pretty cool. All that is so encouraging and exciting. You know, cause I could, I could easily see our, you know, we've got a various, we've got a variety of age folks in our home and it seems like everybody could, could use that type of controller. Yes. You know, obviously you made your bones in the video game industry first as a composer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, most of the demos I looked at for in television, I'm not sure I was hearing the actual music that will be used in the video games, except for Night Stalker seemed like maybe it was. Yeah, Night right Stalker, on. Astro Smash. We've, we've done a couple where we were actually playing okay. the, the music and, and it's, it's awesome. So yeah, uh, Night Stalker sounded, it was cool because it sounds like an update of the old uh, yeah. music, which is kind of reminds me of the thing, you know, Ennio Morricone sort of, you know, dun, yeah. dun, 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 just that terrifying. Um, so are you involved in the music for in, yeah, in television? And Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's funny because... I'm doing, I'm personally doing all the sound design. Wow. Uh, I'm the audio director of, of all the products. I'm producing all of the music. I'm writing some of the music, uh, but you know, the music writing does take longer sure. uh, time, but, but, but it's funny because, you know, I'm the CEO president of Intellivision from Monday to Friday. Um, and then Saturday and Sunday, I'm, I'm in television sound designer and, and audio yeah. director. So, uh, you know, in my spare time on the weekends, my second job yeah. is, you know, and, and it's kind of fun, right? I mean, it's kind of cool. I don't know how many, you know, I don't know if the president of PlayStation <laughs> is, is actually making and designing the games on the weekend, probably not, or, yeah. you know, so, no. so, um, yeah, we, we, you know, we, it, it's something I love. It's something I have passion for. And, uh, yeah, so I'm excited. I mean, that's what the kind of the joke around the office is and or, you know, other places is like, hey, look, you know, I can't guarantee that the games are going to be fun, but I will guarantee that they're going to sound awesome. <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else, these games are going to sound great, people. Uh, no, but they're, they're so much fun. We have so much focus test. That, that's the thing that I'm most looking forward to yep. is that I have this you know, we've created this amazing thing. And when we put it in people's hands, who've never played a game or who are casual or who, or, or even who are players and they're there with their kids or wives, they flip out. They instantly within a couple of seconds, love it automatically. And that's the thing. That's the most fun thing. And you can't really, you can't really show that. It's hard to show that when you do like a gameplay trailer, and it's yeah. like, oh, here's gameplay. And again, our graphics aren't like Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo. We're, we're a step down. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, you know, but that's not important to us. Mm -hmm. What's important? And it's not important to the 3 billion people that play mobile games every day. Do you think Candy Crush, they're looking at it going <laughs> like, oh, how come this, this isn't photorealistic? Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, as long as the, gra the graphic styles that we're choosing and that we're picking are are more simple because our audience likes that more. Yep. If you were to put a realistic photographic PlayStation 5 bowling alley, bowling game in front of my mom and you handed her the PlayStation 5 control, and this isn't a rag on PlayStation because yeah. I love PlayStation. 
Um, yes. I, just as a comparison, though, for my mom, right, for a non-gamer, you say, here's your choice. Here's, here's a perfect bowling alley. Look at the reflection yeah. <laughs> on the thing, and you can see the oil slick, and here's the controller, and you can do a thousand things with it. Or here's this kind of cartoony-looking bowling thing, and all you do is you go like this yeah. to throw the ball. <laughs> Which one do you want? Yep. You know, nine times out of 10, they'll pick an Intellivision. You yep. know, they'll, they'll pick a Miko, uh, you know, the new scene. But, but isn't that interesting where here we are, a, a group, we're, we're David versus Goliath. We're, we're like Rocky Balboa up in this bitch, right? We are, <laughs> we are the underdog of underdogs yes. who have all the heart and passion in the world to bring back gaming the way we all knew it in the 80s when we were all growing up, yes. right? I mean, that's, that's the thing. What does the future hold for us? It's those retro things from the 80s that we grew up on, those retro sensibilities of simple game design, simple, fun, easy to pick up and play. You know, what's, what's old is new again, right? So that's our, that's our whole thing is, is bringing it back to the way it was when we were kids. Because if you think of all the greatest video game moments we ever had, it was when we were playing with other people in a room. Right right? Maybe it was your dad or your mom and, or, or your younger brother, older brother, or friends down the neighborhood, whatever. Our fondest memories of video gaming growing up were when we were with groups of people. And, and that stuff is so on the decline these days, mm. uh, not just because of COVID, before that, for, sure. you know, that like there's, you know, this online multiplayer now means a kid in a dark room with their headphones on, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so we're going to, we're going to bring it back to the way it was. That's, that's our goal. Wow. Well, that was quite an unexpected, uh, journey, but a welcome one. I didn't expect that we would be visited during our show by Brett Weiss from brettweisswords.com. Visit his website to purchase his new NES Omnibus One. Or Howard Scott Warshaw, legendary game designer, creator of Yars Revenge, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the infamous E.T., who also has a new book out, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, available on Amazon and everywhere else. And Haiti from Retro Underscore Gaming at Instagram? With 8,000 games, I mean, that was, you know, we got a lot of catching up to do. And finally, Tommy Tallarico, the current CEO slash president of Intellivision. I mean, we, we, ha we do have a way now, it seems, to uh, really relish what we had in the past and look forward to the future. I'm, fe I'm feeling better now. How about you? Yeah, I, I think they, uh, they brought a lot of sanity to this mess. Mm, yeah, we could use that. Mm -hmm. So I'm feeling better, but I don't know if we've actually proven anything, though. We have proven oh. beyond a shadow of a doubt yeah. that this was the best Christmas episode we've oh. ever done. Oh, well, hey, uh, Merry Christmas to everybody and happy holidays, whatever you might be celebrating. Uh, and we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. And just like Billy Mitchell always says, God bless us, everyone, except for those f over at Twin Galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> and see ya. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.